0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: All right, welcome back. We are on the third installment of our series, Classical Education, A Dominion Perspective, And today we're going to talk about the classical curriculum and the dominion perspective or a dominion perspective that needs to be considered as curriculum is being chosen and
0: used. So Kathy, you like to do a recap? Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to touch, quickly touch base. We've covered before the importance of understanding by what standard and for what ends, and applying that into learning and education. And again, we've gotten real good about doing this in personal sanctification, but it has to go into every area of life. So we're trying to thoroughly flesh that out here in what it means for learning, what it means for education for our kids. We've also talked about the difference in what it means for us when we view knowledge as secular versus sacred versus the city of God versus the city of man. One of them says God has his things and the world has its things and neither the two come together or at least they play well together. The other one says, no, 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 they can never play well together. They're always in antagonism with themselves. So don't try to expect them to play nicely and to, to both stay in their own corners. Um, we've also seen how that comes into play in the, the two types of classical schools that we have, the traditional classic school and the, the neoclassicism and, and the breakdown of those, even the Christian uh, neoclassical schools that have been popping up. So today we need to look at how this by what standard forward ends, how the Proverbs 22.6 we've been talking, how that Westminster number one and the city of man versus city of God comes into play. How do we develop a dominion perspective when we're looking at the subject matter of classical curriculum? Okay, so
1: I think a lot of people have confusions. Their are words like, what curriculum do you use? What's your <laughs> syllabus? <laughs> kind of Put those terms um, into a way in which people will understand because it'll have a lot to do with the choices you make mm-hmm. and whether or not you make a choice and then you went, oh, this was a really bad choice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and, and not being in love just be with the choice you made because it was the choice you made once you have opportunity to
0: interact with it. So most people will tend to look at curriculum as, okay, what subjects or what series of books are you going to be working through? This is your educational plan. This is the lineup. That's your curriculum, right? Well, curriculum is more broadly defined as the totality of student experiences that occur in the educational process. So if we take that and we slot that into our Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way they should go. We're talking about an immersion and how that immersion affects us, an immersion in an educational process, a system and how that trains us. So it's not just the subjects, it's the whole being immersed within this school world, this educational world, this training world, this learning subjects, books, everything world. Curriculum encompasses all of that. So we're looking at that very specific word in that Proverbs verse, in. What are we being immersed in. And that's what defines our curriculum. So curriculum is a carefully planned sequence of instruction, exposure, and experiences that lead towards a specific goal. Okay.
1: So that doesn't mean books, academic learning is the sum total of curriculum. Give some real world examples of what you would also add under that umbrella that people might not Think of as part of a
0: curriculum. <laughs> well, what subjects were not included in school? Were you taught to walk down the hallways on the right-hand side only? How do you do potty breaks in there? Uh, are you you have to be quiet then when the teacher's listening? When the teacher's talking, you have to raise your hand first. That's that's part of the curriculum. This this all the stuff that we say is yeah, it's just going to school and doing these school things. That's training. That's exposure. That's part of the learning process. Curriculum actually has four faces. They are acknowledged and supported by those at the educational hierarchy level. Most of us common Joes don't know them, but they're out there, including John Dewey. He was the shaper of the the modern state educational system. So the people in charge of schooling and in charge of learning realize that it's more than just subjects and books. So these four faces we need to understand to be able to see just how thoroughly impacted we are by what we learn, how we learn to what extent we learn in school. The first face is what we call explicit curriculum. And this is what everyone has thought of. When you hear the word curriculum, you go, okay, now that's the subjects. Those are the books that we read. This is what we're being taught, right? This is the very, very visible aspect. But that's not where curriculum ends. After the explicit, if we've got something explicit, then we have to have something that's implicit. We have to have something that goes along with that. Okay. It wasn't actually stated, but it was implied by what's in there. This is what lies behind the explicit curriculum, which subjects are taught, the way that they're taught, the extent to which they're taught. And those things carefully shape the student's world and life perspective. If you are raised to say an education and learning means math, science, social studies, language arts, and reading, then what do you think you need to know as a human being? What do you think you need to be able to operate under with as a human being? If you want to keep learning one day when you're an adult, if you want to pursue learning, what are you going to try to learn about? There's your five subjects. So these shape the way that we think about learning, about knowledge. Explicit, implicit, our third one then is Hidden curriculum. Ooh, how is that different than implicit? Well, where implicit curriculum unconsciously shapes the thoughts of students, hidden curriculum seeks to shape the behaviors of students. This is training in the culture, the religion externalized as approved by the educational hierarchy and or the state. Okay. It refers to the shifting collection of, there's a few things, the academic, social and cultural messages that, that is currently being valued at the time. It's a shifting collection of unwritten rules and unspoken expectations. You raise your hand again. You raise your hand before asking a question and you're expected to treat your students this way, fellow students this way. You're supposed to treat the teacher this way. It's also the unofficial norms, behaviors and values that exist in the schooling environment. So these are all the different ways that <laughs> we're essentially dogs being trained and how we're supposed to you know some of those are good, but not necessarily all of them and how much of us really pay attention to the behavioral training that's going on in the educational system. So is the hidden curriculum purposely concealed or inadvertently concealed? Uh No, it's purposely concealed because the recognition of these four faces was developed within the educational hierarchy. The secular, let's say secular, the university-driven, the elitist, the pagan specialists. When we talk about Horace Mann, when we talk about John Dewey, when we talk about what it takes in the history of building to a public education system so that we can influence all of the public and say, this is the type of citizen you have to grow up to be. These are the things you need to know. These are the behaviors you have to have so that you'll be useful for us. With your training somebody and you don't want them to know you're training them if they're technically supposed to be on the same mental level as you I mean they're human I'm a human but I want to make them do what I want them to do I'm going to be sneaky about it (laughs) I'm not going to tell them that I'm training them through careful Pavlovian (laughs) responses here or there you know ding your bell here's your little piece of cheese you don't even realize that I'm training you to do this it's not going to be as effective if they know they're not going to willingly go into it because why on earth would I want somebody who's the same image of God as me, the same knowledge level as me, the same capabilities as me, to then tell me or to shape me or to train me or to decide for me.
1: You can only have
0: you don't know. I I really want
1: to um dive into the hidden part of it because I think today we see in the public square what was hidden is now not so hidden anymore. Mm -hmm. And we I guess we could talk about why did they go from hidden to non-hidden. Um, And whether that was a tactical move or was it a stupid move on their part, because take, for example, uh, and this goes back years, what is a family? Okay. So we'll have a student come up and talk about her two mommies or her two daddies or two daddies and a mommy or whatever it's going to be. And the children are supposed to listen and they're supposed to clap and they're supposed to say, good job, Susie. That was really great. And now they have this idea that a family could be a lot of different things, not because it was explicitly taught, but by validating the student who has, you know, who lives in this situation, right? An agenda is being pushed. So to the point where now you have strange looking people, and let's face it, they look strange. Men dressed as women, not particularly attractive women with, you know, oodles of makeup, now reading stories, that hidden agenda started to manifest itself because it'd be hard pressed to say anybody's hiding anything.
0: Well, it had reached a breaking point. So this is a multi-generational strategy. And when it was first set up with Horace Mann, when it was first developed with, with John Dewey, there was a point where you realized, okay, you can't change society overnight. You have to move in incremental steps. We couldn't have just gotten to the point we're at today by somebody waking up and saying, no, you know what? We were all really super devout as of yesterday, but today we're going to make sure that Christianity has gone, the family's blown to pieces and let's just ham fist our way in. No, it has to be subtle. But if you do it in little increments, if you do it in little ways hidden behind the scenes, through a public education system that everyone has to go through, that everyone is going to be trained with it through, then one generation to the next, it's not even full generations, this decade worth of kid and then this next decade's worth of kids and this next decade's worth of kids, what they're taught in schools today is not the same as they were taught 10 years ago. It's not the same stuff that they were taught 10 years before that. It's not the same stuff they were taught 10 years before that. But luckily, there's a big enough gap between a parent and a kid, between the parent who's going to pay attention from their own memories and the kids that they're not looking in. They're not seeing the changes and they just assume it's close enough, similar enough to their own experience they're not going to question the subtle little differences. They're not going to look for all these little changes and how much it's shifted. That's why the hidden curriculum is so very important in the educational plan. Right. So the hidden curriculum works because there has been that fourth category The Mm -hmm. excluded
1: curriculum.
0: Yep, we've got explicit, we've got implicit, which shapes our thoughts. We've got the hidden, which shapes our behaviors and our tolerances. Now we've got the excluded. These are the things which absolutely are not allowed to be brought up or to be taught within or to be acknowledged as truth in the educational system. Now, 50 years ago, you could not step into a school and say, you cannot pray within school. You're not allowed to bow your head and pray over your meal. You're not allowed to mention the name of God. But look where we are nowadays. This has a sequential moving, a sequential shifting, just like the hidden stuff, so that we get more and more of things that can stop or stand up to this change, this, this shift out of the way. What has been excluded? Obviously God. But you have to go beyond that. Excluded also means the ability to say, no, I don't agree with the social norm nowadays well you you have to be tolerant i'm sorry otherwise you're you're phobic you're fearful you're 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 exclusionary you're not allowed to be that way you have to we have banned words we have banned thoughts you're allowed to have something personal over on your own but you're not even allowed to go into a bathroom and expect to find the same gender of people in your bathroom nowadays right and that's an important thing to look at
1: Because, as we mentioned in the last segment, well, I'll just send my children to a Christian school and it'll all be okay, right? Because none of those things happen there. Mm -hmm. But what's the danger if you think that how the explicit, implicit, and hidden curriculum of the traditional or neoclassical education impacts someone? Is it any wonder that we have people talking about a
0: post-Christian society. Well, and this is why we have to sit down and look at this concept of curriculum as an all-encompassing system. The problem that a lot of Christian schools fall prey to is that they take the system, the public, the secular, the city of man, the God-hating system and say, and we'll just add Jesus. But then it's always something external, always something that can be wiped away. And it's not woven in as thoroughly as the rest of the system is, because it is. It is a full, comprehensive system. You want to get your Jesus into the middle of that? Then you've got to blow up the system. You've got to weave a new system with Christ at the center. So we need to really break down into this curriculum, this We're going to go into the classical curriculum, but you're going to see that a lot of this is still going to apply to just the general public education curriculum nowadays, a a full system that is set up to say, this is what knowledge is, this is what learning is, this is how you're supposed to live as a human being and what you're supposed to do with the knowledge and the learning that you have. Guess what, guys? That's dominion. This is a system of training you in dominion, the way you should go. We're immersing you in what we estate is the way you should go. And you'll notice it has nothing to do with God. It has a lot to do with categories. So you pointed out to
1: me as we were discussing, if you're taught A, B, and C are the subjects that you need to know in your education, mm-hmm. when you grow up and now you have to make decisions, adjudications on whether something's good or wrong, guess what categories you have, mm-hmm. A, B, and C? Mm -hmm. Now, if another person or another group had X, Y, and Z, and that became their systematic approach to learning, then they'll think in terms of X, Y, Z. So Mm -hmm. it really matters the categories that people have. And Mm -hmm. you've brought up secular, sacred, city of man, city of God. It's important to keep categories in mind, is it not?
0: Yeah. and, And we can say that that's playing word games but that's the whole point. It is playing word games. They've been playing word games this whole time. They've been setting up these categories, setting up these definitions this whole time to shape you, to implicitly shape the way that you see things, to shape the way that you then react to these things in your behaviors. And what you never bother to consider, what you never bother to do what is excluded from your realm of this is what I'm supposed to do here on earth. So that's why we're going to go ahead and we're going to break this, this all down so we can see where all of these problem areas are. And it's not complete. This is not comprehensive. This is not all of the problem areas. This is a mile high view of some of the problems that, that this system has some of the problems in the terminology, some of the problems in the thoughts that they're trying to shape us to the behaviors they're trying to shape us to and how that means that the system then is not a God honoring system, and just adding Jesus on the side doesn't make it therefore a God honoring system. Right, it becomes a side order like French mm. fries
1: or salad. You know, just <laughs>
0: save your a la carte.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. So let's talk about, um, and this is a subject that people are probably extremely confused about: the liberal arts. What do we mean when we talk about the liberal arts?
0: Now, depending upon your generation, you've got a different answer because the liberal arts meant something in the 60s and it meant something in the 80s. And it means meant something in the aughts and it means something nowadays. So uh, let's go ahead and let's unwind the terminology some to see what's behind this. The uh, definition of liberal means willing to respect or accept behavior or opinions different from one's own. It's being open to new ideas. (laughs) sounds great, right? (laughs) According to the city of man, it does. But what is the true city of man perspective of that? It Uh, amounts to agree
1: with me or we cancel you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to say, we're going to be tolerant. We're going to be open to everything. And anyone who is not tolerant and open to absolutely everything is not allowed. It's putting forward a tabula rasa mindset, you know, that, that blank page, but well, what's, what's the problem with a blank page? What's the problem with a blank slate? Well, You're the Bible blank. doesn't say we're blank slate. <laughs> no, it says we're born something. in sin. There was something automatically written on that, but they want a blank slate because what do you do with a blank slate? You write on it. You write on it and who gets to hold the pen. Now, you concentrate on not putting anything on there yourself and we'll make sure everything's filled in for you, okay? You just have to accept whatever's put onto there. So then our city of God perspective of this should be, no, no, we're we're not blank slates. We're not tabular asses. We're born in sin, but also open to new ideas. No, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything you're presenting as a new idea is just a cleverly repackaged or a regifted previous sin. Oh, okay, so congratulations. You got a lovely new boat to put on top, but it's the same pile of crap inside the box.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Okay, so we've tackled liberal. Mm-hmm. What do we mean by the arts? (laughs) This is fun. Um, These are defined as subjects of study primarily concerned with the processes and the products of human creativity and social life. (laughs) Okay, so what are our emphasis words in there? What what does this revolve around there? Because there's a lot of extra stuff. Okay, processes and products, whatever. Our center there is human creativity and social life. All right. So man's chief end is human creativity and social. No, 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 no. That's one of these is a theocentric statement and the other one is an anthropocentric statement. So when someone holds up the arts and the definition right here, it's holding up man's abilities and man's glories and, and the, and, and what man has been able to accomplish. (sighs) That's a problem from a city of God perspective. We know the temptation to want to make everything all around us, to want to be as God's determining right and wrong for ourselves and to see ourselves as absolutely wonderful. You look at all the great things that we're able to accomplish. Yes, but you're made in the image of God. You, you aren't the original. You are, you are the copy. So all of these things you don't get to claim for yourself. These so I'd are. Like to, so I'd like to interject here for a section,
1: for a sec, for a moment. Um, because you can see very clearly that going back to explicit, implicit, hidden, and then excluded, there are only certain things you can come away with, you know, input will, you know, demand output. So if I'm told that this is a work of art, and I say, actually, I've seen shower curtains that were more attractive Mm -hmm. than this. (laughs) <laughs> I have committed a sin in a humanistic sense of not valuing the self-expression of the artist. So you come into it all automatically apologizing for the word of God. If you've been inundated with this point of view, mm-hmm. because if God says this is wrong, From the biblical point of view, it's wrong. We really aren't going to discuss it. I'll acknowledge that there are other people who think this way, but they're
0: wrong. This is, and this is, again, the the problem with, we're looking at this as an immersive system. Am I trying to please God or am I trying to please man? What is this teaching you? The idea of liberal arts in general is teaching you to please and to be pleased by man, to see your world, to look at the world around you in terms of man and the beauty of man and what man has been able to accomplish and, and man's uniqueness amongst the created. I mean, it, sure, sure. But for what purpose? To what ends? By what standard? We're, we're exalting man beyond what the Bible says we can. So we're going to break down these liberal arts by subject real quick so that you can see, okay, the, these are how they, they revolve in there. There's a problem already with the category There is a perspective already that the category is shaping us. So we want to look at the specific subjects that fall under this. If you remember back to our first um, podcast, we talked about the the subjects that were covered underneath of this. Top three in there are the rhetoric, the grammar, grammar, and the logic. Now, this is one of the big draws for classical curriculum, for classical education, because those have, have really been replaced by the more ambiguous term language arts in our time and actually, that really just fo- focuses on elementary grammar and essay composition more than how to analyze and build an argument. So we, we, <laughs> they're teaching us more about using the words just correctly instead of using them effectively. So that's not an upgrade in our education. This is a downgrade in our education. So it seems really good then when you've got the chance to learn rhetoric and thorough grammar and logic, right? Um, but again, by what standard and for what ends? Both public education and classical education focus on language as a necessary skill. They only vary to the degree in which those skills are taught. And we say these are good things to learn. I have no problem with you learning rhetoric and logic. We're going to be teaching rhetoric and logic. These are things that you should know. But the system they operate within, why are they teaching you rhetoric and logic? What do they want you to be able to express? Dominion language still teaches these same skills, but it focuses on the purpose And the power of our words, the wonder that we have in the gift of communication, starting with, and God spoke, and it became, (laughs) back in Genesis 1. This also ties between the gift of words and the responsibility of acknowledging and expressing reality. And it also talks about our Christian duty concerning what standard and to what ends we use our words for. The world will teach you the ability to use words so that you can win at all costs so that you can submit people underneath of you. We as believers learn words because, because we serve a living word, because the word became flesh, because God spoke and it was. We understand the purpose of communication, and it has to do with the gospel and spreading the good news. And we have to be able to use words to do that, not only to be able to use them effectively, but to use them righteously and holy. Right. Um, it wasn't a big
1: thing when I was raising my children, but I don't know where it came from, but a child is throwing a tantrum and the parent says, no, 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 no. Use your words. <laughs> well, <laughs> that child is already making a very, very deliberate um communication. I really? don't like it. And I'm going to try to get you to submit. So to say, use your words. What if the words that come out are, are, Reflective of the child's attitude, child knows I can't speak those words because I'm going to get in trouble because words are the problem, not my attitude. Mm -hmm. So teaching children that whatever they're doing is communication, whether it's an attitude, whether it's grunts, or whether it's actual words. And then whatever you do, you're supposed to do it to the glory of God. That's a much different cultural application than what you said. The effective communicator so you can win at any cost. Because after all, the most important
0: thing is to win the argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and that's uh, that's the problem is that we see a lot of parents wanting kids to go into the classical system so that they can be win on debate team and manage to to get that seat into Harvard to be because of their excellence. That's not the purpose. That's not supposed to be our purpose as believers. This system does not define a good purpose. It can get you the skills. You can learn good rhetoric and grammar and logic within that system, but it does not show you how to use those righteously. And that's what we as believers should be focusing on. Right. So our next subject in this lineup of liberal arts, actually, the, the next couple are kind of head scratches for us. We have astronomy, and then we have mathematics and geometry. Under liberal arts, wait a minute, wait a minute, aren't those STEM subjects? We're so used to understanding maths and sciences as STEM subjects. But the classical system puts them under liberal arts. Well, that's that's an implication. What is the implication of treating astronomy as a process or product of human creativity and social life? Well, So staring off into the heavens, what do we as believers see when we stare into the heavens? We read the biblical verse about the vastness of creation and the wonder of the God who is even bigger than all of this. It is something that's meant to humble us. But the classical system says, hmm, humans are creative. And social what, what wait, what, why? That this becomes a novelty instead of a, of a central heart shaping for us to be able to understand our place in the created order. Right. So you have the
1: scripture that says the heavens declare the glory of God, but if you leave God out of a study of astronomy, you can come up with such creative and Let's go back to the creativity part, that there was this giant explosion <laughs> that produced order. And if you say it with a straight face and you push it enough, then, yeah, that makes sense. Now
0: I see what Charles Darwin was getting at. If the whole of, of the expanded cosmos is, is meant to be about our creativity and our social life, then we shouldn't be surprised at the, the vanity of speculation that caused the outbreak of charles darwin well why shouldn't i be able to sit around and use those vast heavens to make the world revolve around me to find a way to get rid of god yeah 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 okay so the bible wants us to use those to admit that there is god but i bet ya, i bet ya i can use that vastness out there in the sky to show how there is no god Watch me. Watch my mind work. Watch that logic work. Watch my rhetoric come into play. And I can do this. I can twist this around. So that, that one thing out there that's supposed to declare the glory of God on how declare there is no God.
1: That looks like the uh, worshiping the creation as opposed mm-hmm. to the creator.
0: Yep. Yep. So that's, that's astronomy under this. And that's a problem. It's math and geometry too. I'm, I, math and geometry are very important. Why on earth are they considered liberal arts within the classical system? Is math really open to accepting new ideas? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> well, but what's the problem with viewing math as open to accepting diff- new ideas or willing to respect or accept different opinions? everyone says the facts, the facts, and math is inescapable, and, and you can't fudge the numbers, right? But if we teach it as such a way as to say, no, this is part of what it also means to be able to be open to accepting ideas, that even if we come up with proofs that are mathematical, the improbability of the Big Bang, but nobody wants to consider the mathematical improbability of the, the Big Bang, because math, as liberal arts said, yeah, okay, it's a really, really, really slim possibility, but it could have happened. Therefore, let's say that it did actually happen. Right. What? Why? So mm, math, geometry, we're going to put a pin in those until we get to the sciences to, just, to talk a little bit more about a dominion perspective on those, because as a dominion perspective, we really don't want to put those underneath liberal arts. We don't want to put those under human creativity. Okay, what's the next subject? Um, the last one in that liberal arts setup was music. And we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier with the comments on art here, okay? Most people wouldn't argue that music is an art. I am a musician. I spent a year studying classical music off at college. Actually, my minor is in music. So I, I trust music is, is semi my domain. It's an art, it's probably the most artistic and creative of the subjects that's actually in this category. So, okay, you consider it an art. Is music liberal? Do we teach music liberally that all ears should be willing to respect or accept different opinions or tastes other than one's own? I don't know if anybody out there has gone in and, and, and seen the Francis Schaeffer, How Then Shall We Live? He did a wonderful video series on that, which we absolutely loved him in his little short pants and his long socks walking around all over Europe. He had a wonderful section in there to teach us a good perspective on music and art. Historically, the best and the richest music was that which followed certain parameters in in harmony in regular rhythm, in these somewhat predictable chord progressions in identifiable themes and variations. These are universally pleasing to the human ear. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? That there are things that are universally pleasing to the human ear. Everyone loves the sound of a major chord. I mean, even a minor chord. Everyone loves the sound of a minor chord. And when dissonance happens, everyone goes, it's kind of nails on the chalkboard. It's fine. There is a known dependable formula. And within that known dependable formula, there's so much room for creativity to operate within. Historically, the best and highest art was that which most commonly and most, most closely mimicked creation. It was the most realistic. It captured the best emotion in the moment. Because what is more artistic than the created order? What is more breathtakingly beautiful than a freshly opened morning glory? What God set the bar. You've seen a sunset before? <laughs> good, good luck topping that. So God set the bar. And the best of our art, then mimics these concepts of balance and symmetry and color and um, perspective that automatically occurs in the created order. But the trend in music and art, especially since classical has been revitalized in our day and time, has been an anti-beauty. It's been a rebelling against those dependable formulas. It's been an unmaking of everything that was considered beautiful before us because that's what modernism does. So now we have changed over. We have made new standards. Music has gone discordant or thumpingly repetitive. Tone is adjusted with technology. Music performance itself, live music performance is dying out. Instead, we have gone to a system that just makes money. It doesn't make anything absolutely creative, but we're told we need to appreciate this. We're told we need to understand and this is the new beauty. You need to understand this. It sounds like nails on the chalkboard to you. It sounds absolutely chaotic. And it seems like it just ended randomly at no good point and without resolution. But trust me, it's beautiful. Accept this. Appreciate this. Thus we declare. Art's gone the same way. (laughs) Like you said, it, it used to be the easel, um, lovely little watercolor or whatnot. So now it's an abstract blobs. And then there's a random toilet seat mounted on the wall of a art gallery. And you have to have little signs to show you, no, no, this itself is actually the art exhibit because there's no use of it. itself <laughs> to actually be able to say, no, this is art. I, that looked like a bench. It looks like something I should be sitting on. So why? okay. Our domain perspective on art. So this again taking this back to music and the liberal arts, a diminished perspective here says, yes, yes, we need to understand the beauty. We need to understand. But beauty and pleasing to the eyes and ears are standards that were established alongside the creative order. You could say they're actually part of our human nature. We were created to find these things beautiful because we were created in the image of almighty God who created this beauty, okay? We can't help but go, oh yeah, that's right. Because God went, this is going to be breathtaking. Watch.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Demands to appreciate these new standards and reject the created order standards of what is beautiful, of what sounds lovely, what looks lovely. It's just anarchy in art. It's a rebellion altogether. Eh, And sometimes the classical system will acknowledge that. More often than not, the classical system will only engage with the older stuff when the standards were still being held up and in standards that don't exist nowadays, that no one can relate to nowadays. So the only thing that we've learned about music and art is something that we can't find in our world. Oh yeah. Okay. You can go somewhere over in Europe to look through all of those great old fashioned galleries, but the stuff that's right down the street from you, classical system doesn't teach you anything about that. It's not going to teach you how to engage with that. It's not going to tell you that there's a problem with this. And this is a de-evolution of beauty. It's just going to ignore that everything in the last 200 years has happened. That's not a very dominion engagement. So everything, music has a worldview underpinning
1: it. Art has a worldview underpinning it. And if you're going to evaluate it, the real question should be, what is this communicating? And I've asked that on a tour in an art gallery or music. And it's like, why does it have to have a meaning? It's like, <laughs> oh, I see. So, this is the approach we can engage in things, we can purchase things, we can appreciate things that have no meaning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, that sounds like the antithesis of why God created man
0: <laughs> exactly. So, thus for the liberal arts, and that is that is a big centrality in the classical system, in the classical curriculum system. So, we can already see that there's there's some problems with these definitions. There's some problems with the, the, the way that they're making us see what exists in the world and the purposes that it exists for and how we're supposed to respond to it. So we're gonna move on to the next big category. That's <laughs> natural sciences. And if you couldn't tell by the way that those were emphasized, that's a couple more terms that we have to deal with because everyone pretty much has a connotation that they already put with both of those terms. Natural would mean existing in, or created by nature. Well, that's not bad, is, is it? Well- Nature, who's nature? <laughs> what? Yeah, you can't You can't be angry with nature. Well, according to the city of man, this is perfect. Natural, calling something natural, existing in a cause by nature. That's a happy medium in the to be as God war, right? So we'll say, no, 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 man didn't create the the, the, the created world, the natural world, the physical world all around us. So we have limited power over it. But we're also not gonna say that it has a creator. <laughs> so we could say, no, 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 it wasn't us, but we're still not gonna bend the knee and say it was someone else that made it. Nature made itself. Well, that's a problem. What's a city of God perspective in saying nature causes its own ends, that the nature exists in the monster itself? Existing in the monster itself. We have a term for that in theological circles. It's called a aseity. And we've been discussing this. Andrea, do you have the definition for aseity? Well, I meant rather than an
1: explicit definition, it's being complete in oneself. Mm-hmm. Right? So God has aseity. He doesn't need anything external to himself. He will never be added to, never be subtracted to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of, or one manifestation of the sin and the fall is that man wants to have a satiety for himself, that he's complete in himself. And mm-hmm. so as soon as you lose the creator-creature distinction, and what's more, just dismiss with the creator, what you're left with is what you think. So when really, when people say, follow the science, they're saying, follow what I say, because <laughs> I call it science, not because
0: there's an objective uh, unchanging reality there, and this is where the definition of natural becomes important because we 're talking about existing in or caused by nature. This is that middle stepping point okay well i i, I don 't want to say I really don't want to say that that God has a sayity. i don 't want to say that god is self deriving self originating made everything self sufficient autonomous Mm, but I can't just jump straight to me. So I'm going to use nature as the stepping stone. If I first and foremost claim nature is self-derived, self-originating, self-sufficient, autonomous, this ties into our Big Bang thing. Everything came about itself and it's, it's, it's managed to make this wonderfully perfect system all on its own and it's keeping itself going then maybe I can squeak in under there as a part of that nature and natural order and get to say, oh yeah, yeah. And that means a part of me is also self-created, self-generating, self-sufficient and autonomous. So, so really the emphasizing of the natural order is an attempt to move us out from under God's order, but hiding under our own little fig leaves, <laughs> rather literally.
1: <laughs> yeah. Rather literally.
0: Okay. So that's natural. What about, Science. How do we Mm, define science? science. King science. You ready for this? This is a grand definition. Science is knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially by observation, experimentation, and the development of theories to describe the results of these activities. That sounds very analytical, very scientific, and very above reproach, right? Well we look at the city of man perspective of this definition, there are epistemological implications. How do we know what we know? Well, you just said it's based off of observation, experimentation. It's based on our ability to parse through the created world around us. Now we do have ability to observe things, but we never observe things perfectly. Technically into the last couple hundred years, we never observed atoms. Does that mean that there weren't atoms? (laughs) as the world existed for 5,800 years without atoms, but then suddenly we've developed the microscopes you're going to be able to see these things. So now we can say there are atoms. Now this is resting on a system of discovering general truths and the operation of general laws by people who are limited, by people who are finite, by people who are capable of erring. Mm, and that capable of erring, that's a hinge point here because this, definition also says that this is a neutral discovery process of neutral truths through man as a neutral observer or experimenter or hypothesizer. Now, I would hope (laughs) that we don't have to spell out all of the dominion implications for that. Is Can any science be a neutral discovery process of neutral truths through men that are neutral observers and experimenters? No, it's absolutely impossible because we're not neutral. It's that same problem that we had earlier with the tabula rasa. There is no tabula rasa. There is only born in sin. Now, there's a lot of different ways where we're going to be blind to how we're affected by that sin or where we earnestly try to not be affected by our fallen nature. And it's not even just intentionally sinning. Some of that is just we're fallen in our Knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion. We're fallen in our ability to be able to perceive things and our willingness to accept truth. We're fallen in our faculties because we are created beings. We are not perfectly capable of understanding all of these things. So claiming to find truth solely through a human filter that, that doesn't acknowledge itself to have any shortcomings is always going to be a failed endeavor. We can't then put faith in it and add on to that. Now they've added the, the, the theories, the development of theories. What is a theory? This is a guess. Uh, and how effective is going to be a guess made by a an unacknowledged fallen nature of a scientist who claims neutrality. And yet they want to call that as a general truth. That's part of this science. That's part of this knowledge. No, 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 no. Me, I'm sure I'm I'm capable of thinking these things without being affected. I can't observe this anywhere, but I'm going to guess that that's what this is and we're going to call it truth. That's a reliable process. And what it is, is a very
1: much an evolving process. So they're willing to say we thought this 10 years ago, but now we know and never identify all the implications of that erroneous view um, I tend to listen to a lot of things on nutrition and health and I might like an author, but as soon as he says, an evolution crafted this wonderful thing and I'm like, <laughs> <No>. wow, okay. <laughs> Did you have to say that to get your book written? I don't know. Maybe you had to say that, but it goes back to an observation you made. If we're calling it natural sciences... And we say, I'm, you know, I'm going to major in the natural sciences. We're actually using a deceptive and untrue term. What's a better term that you like?
0: I, I prefer, and I am, I am a big fan of learning science, but not the sciences. I'm a big fan of created order studies. Now, think about how that shifts this. Those two incendiary terms, natural and science that have been used to subjugate us to the supposed experience and 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 the elitism of people more capable than us or people more knowledgeable than us to understanding a system of the world around us through observation that disappears when we say no this is created order studies natural change to created puts society back where it belongs And it shifts natural back into its subservient role. Nature isn't ruling over creation. Nature is the creation that is ruled over. It was created. It is not the beginning point. Order, instead of science, is order. Order doesn't happen accidentally or coincidentally, but intentionally, which means there was intention in making it. If it didn't make itself, if it's not the first place and it's intentional, it has to have a designer, okay? <laughs> and if, this, if, if that doesn't set in thoroughly enough with us, if, 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 if we still want to escape it out of that, take a moment to think. All the specialization of the scientists nowadays also points us to the obvious reality that the intelligent design of the world is far too vast and too complex And despite all advancements, still undiscoverable beyond a certain point for any one single person to be able to understand it all. So if a mere human can't understand the entirety of the created order, then someone with a mere human intellect, even a genius one, even some of the scientists that are genius ones could not have designed that order. This further brings glory to God. Because again, bringing that glory to God is pointing out just the big gap between who he is and what he is capable of and who we are and what we are capable of. We can do that so much better just by acknowledging this reality in our name of this study.
1: So science is usually broken down to biology, physics, chemistry, geology. What's the Dominion perspective for
0: studying these categories? Well, we start here with biology first and foremost and and that should be really 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 easy because in Genesis we started with biology. We were placed in a garden. <laughs> we were given duty to work the land. We were also given duties to the animals. There is a very important tie between the names that animal that Adam gave the animals according to knowing their natures. That means that Adam had to be able to observe oh and see the nature of animals and he had then acknowledge his responsibility towards those animals. And that's just not just Adam, but that's for all of us both before and after the fall. So there's a foundational aspect of biology. We find this at its fullness in the sixth commandment. Most of us don't bother to pay much attention to the positive aspects. We go thou shalt not and thou shalt not and thou shalt not. But number six Commandment number six is more than just thou shalt not kill. Westminster Shorter Catechism number 68. What is required in the sixth commandment? In other words, what is beyond thou shalt not? The answer is the sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Huh. I wonder how studies in biology could come into play with that. Well, let's look at the, the follow up question number 69. What is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbidden us, the taking away of our own life, the life of our neighbor unjustly, or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. So it's not just actually killing people, anything that could cause them to come to harm or could potentially cause them to die. So biology is not only important, it is central to our dominion duties, specifically (laughs) studies in anatomy and health in first aid, in physical fitness, these fall under created order studies because we are supposed to take dominion on this earth, take dominion of ourselves, the safety and health of ourselves, the safety and health of other people, the safety and health of the planet around us, the animals around us, as much as I I don't like the greenies who say, you know, absolutely have to stop everything we're doing to 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 destroy the world. And even if that means thousands and thousands of human beings die, no, but we do still owe a duty to the earth to not use it wastefully, to use it under dominion, to use it properly in a way that brings glory to God and in a way that does not despise the creation we've been given as a tool. So when we look
1: at the other sciences, and again, you said this was an overview, Mm -hmm. they help us understand our world better. They're part of the um, natural curiosity that God had placed in us so that we would discover things that he has already Established. Mm -hmm. So when somebody discovers, oh, atoms, it's not like, as you said, they created atoms, they discovered it. So God gave the dominion mandate. And part of that is the discovery over time so that we can use these things to further the kingdom of God. And we've never, we haven't really spent a lot of time with the terms, the term the kingdom of God, but that's sort of the point of it all if education is not to serve the kingdom of god well
0: gee which kingdom is it serving yeah yeah and and more importantly the 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 wording here and and the way that this is presented in the the classical system the idea of the implicit curriculum the hidden curriculum the excluded curriculum How is science, how is this important? I mean, this is a vital dominion duty. Science plays such a key part in how we're able to bring all of the the created order under the rule and reign of Almighty God. So, how very important is it in the way that it's presented, in the way that it shapes our perceptions, in the way that it shapes our behaviors? How does it, how does this classical system then ask us to engage with nature. What well, becomes a mere intellectual endeavor? It becomes a novelty or a pathway to some sort of elitism where we can use our knowledge then to rule over others and submit them to others and to our scientific theories for the next decade, at which point we'll come up with brand new scientific theories and we'll be able to move on and submit, subject other people to those scientific theories. There's a very different standard that's being used to measure, and it's working towards very different ends. So, while these subjects are very, very, very important to study, within the classical system, they are by man's standards and for man's ends. They shape our minds to man's standards and man's ends. They shape our behavior to man's standards and man's ends. And they leave no room. They exclude us from acknowledging God alongside man's standards and man's ends. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to classic literature. <laughs> <laughs> this one, this one's fun because we could do a whole thing on this and we're going to try to chunk because like, you know me, I'm a reader. I, I could go reading on and on and on forever and ever. So I don't, I don't want to bore everybody with the class, all the classic literature. which Most people don't really like reading that many books. So quickly classic literature, you've got connotations in your mind of what you think classics means. Admit, originally the classics really they became the classics because everybody used them so much. They were the same core group of ancient works that were considered by pretty much every teacher for hundreds of years as, Oh, these are things you need to be familiar with and to understand. They were standards in history, standards in fiction, and they were standards in philosophy. (sighs) There's been a shift in classics over the last 200 years. And some classical systems accept that shift. And some of them don't. So we're we're kind of splitting here a little bit. Some will stick originally with that old school classics. Some of them will say, oh, no, 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 we've added to the classics. We've added to the things that you need to be familiar with and understand. And the things that are being added to them are more modern stories with more modern sentiments and more modern expressions of modern morality. Mm, That should probably give you a, a good sign about where classics and the use of classics nowadays is going Classics are now commonly declared in advance of a widespread audience conception. So they're self-declared classics and they don't even wait around to see if they're going to be successful. And many of the classics from 50 years ago, aren't even in print anymore. So that should tell you then that quite often classics are whatever the current educational elites determine is worthwhile or valuable or should be read by the masses. Huh? I wonder how that understanding would affect our perspective of curriculum and the indoctrination and being trained in what you should, the way you should go. Well, if you're trained in the mantraism of Rousseau and Mark Twain and Assad <laughs> you're, you're going to be trained to a very specific humanistic mindset. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a problem here uh, with how literature can be used and is often used. And it's very, purposefully used um, by the ruling elites. What on earth is emphasized in classical literature? I, I, I'm a big reader. I, I just wrapped up one of my favorite textbooks, Kevin Swanson, Worldviews and Conflict. I'm going to quote him here because this is great. Great literature shares more than propositions, but it also shares attitudes and heart trajectories. The great thinkers and writers are truly dangerous men because they believe in the wrong things. And that they teach the wrong ideas. That's all too often what we find in these classics. These are not held up to any moral standards. Most classics were taught in schools. They were written by men in rebellion against God and the biblical faith. Uh, You can find still some that will say, oh, you no, no, no. You include Martin Luther's bondage of the will. No, 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 no. Include Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. 90% easily of what's taught in even Christian classical schools in classical literature is still going to be non-Christian literature. And not just doesn't happen to be Christian, but supports you living a life in opposition to God, in opposition to his created order, in opposition to his morality, in opposition to what he says you're supposed to be doing with your life. So I'd like to make a comment here.
1: And again, I don't want this discussion to go so long that we not bore people. I don't think they'd be bored, but tire them out. Um, whenever you're reading a work of fiction and you don't ask the question, is this in line with scripture? Is the character who's being posited as the hero, what is his world and life view? How does his point of view measure up with the commandments of God? You don't use that as a template then you have to sometimes, if this is obviously the hero of the story, Mm -hmm. say, well, maybe those things that he does don't really matter. And I've heard people say, you know, separate the art from the artist. If the if the author of something was a homosexual who denied the existence of God, you can't tell me that his work isn't valuable. Well, why can't I tell you that his work isn't valuable? Where did he start? Where did he end? So how are we assigning value to that other than what you implied? Everybody says this is a classic. It's a classic.
0: Yeah. Well, what we have to watch within literature, anytime that we read stories, especially with, with fiction, but if you look at those big categories, history is this is a statement of what actually happened. So you're claiming truth, Um philosophy. <laughs> this is a statement of religious truth. This is a statement of moral right. This is a statement of the mind of man. That's a religious statement. <laughs> that, so those are all, again, making religious statements. Fiction is meant to make us empathetic and affectionate toward or hateful against the protagonist for the, the odd antihero story. So they're trying to get to your affections. They're trying to encourage you to feel and to come away thinking a particular way. Which of those do you think we shouldn't submit to biblical analysis, speculation, skepticism to see whether or not we should be reading this as good or bad or or whether we should judge the author for putting this down on the page or not? Well, the answer should be none. (laughs) You know, and it reminds me of Kathy. Um, Have you ever
1: gone to a place to eat and said, and you're told this has good ratings? Well, before Yelp, where the average citizen would get an opportunity, it had to do with the restaurant critic. The restaurant critic liked it or not. And there are many stories about if a critic panned a restaurant's menu or execution, then people wouldn't go. And it's as though there is this thing called good food that tastes good, that's universal. (laughs) And as you pointed out, when you're reading a book, the author becomes the God of that story. Mm -hmm. And if the author is submitted to God, then you won't see anything that's contradictory to the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Thou shalt not kill. But as soon as we start liking the guy, but he does a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you know, subtly was like, well, maybe
0: that's just not as important as I thought it was. We start rationalizing, we start changing. And this is, we go back to that question again, by what standard, for what ends? What is your definition of good? <laughs> there is no one good but God, right? right? So then I don't, I don't care what skill or talent or creativity or, or social impact it had. It's only good if it leads towards that Westminster number one end. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If this story does not bring glory to God and encourage me to enjoy him forever, then am I as a Christian allowed to call it good? Am I allowed to give it my affection? The answer should be no. And what we have in classic literature then is a series of books that have been declared to be good. Century after century, year after year, or even now in the modern times, just by whoever is ruling and saying, no, no, this is good. You have to accept this as good. You have to be willing to train your heart to consider this as good in opposition to the God who is good. So our dominion perspective of classic literature then is, uh, mm-hmm, we, we should never be engaging with anything without comparing it back to almighty God. We should never be taking somebody's writing, especially you're a writer. I obviously do a lot of writing. Even if you've only done a little bit of writing in a high school uh, English course, you have a personal tie to what you're putting down. You believe in what you're putting down. You've put effort into it. You've got something invested in it. You've got something of yourself in it. We don't get to ignore the authors in their lives, what their aims and intentions were that's just overly simplistic or trying to make excuses for us to indulge in affections via literature that the Bible doesn't give us room for. Right. So um, next move we're along.
1: We're, yeah. We're moving yep. along. We have, I believe, two more categories to mm-hmm. discuss. And one, one of them point. we already
0: did. So yeah. we've got a little bit, the, the next major one in there was fine arts. And, and most of the high points of this, we touched on then in our discussion of music Okay, so when we're talking about fine arts, we're talking about creative art, especially visual arts, whose products are supposed to be appreciated primarily and solely for their imaginative, aesthetic, or intellectual content. Now, how does that definition line up with Dominion?
1: What is it? It's so relative. It's so subjective that it works for anything.
0: Yep. We can do it. We're allowed to appreciate it regardless of what it actually brings about or if it's completely unproductive on the earth afterwards. And the problem is this is training us away from a biblical concept of working hard with our hands. Artists can have wonderful skill and yet if the whole point of art is to hold up the skill above the ability to do practical things, the ability to feed a family, how many jokes do we have about the starving artist who's living on the street and just hoping for their big break? Well, that's not a dominion lifestyle. That's not a dominion endeavor. And there are a lot of modern entertainment fields that are just like this, that are a vanity of the creative process that are a vanity of, but, but I, I have the skill and and I like doing this. Ergo I should be able to make money and people should give me money for how good I think I'm doing on this You remember that New Testament admonition that if you don't work, you don't eat.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And although it's a subject for a different time, I think how much of our enamor uh, or our being enamored with sports and sports figure, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when all is said and done, this person can swim faster than other people or this person can throw a ball further or hit a ball further, that it has almost taken on a life that. It doesn't even have to mean anything to the general public, as long as it means something to that person, you know, so that striving for excellence, I guess it has its roots, you know, in the Olympic games and and a very classic and paganistic thing that we don't even realize that the Bible tells us, we're talked, we're spoken to about sports, but it's the the example of the race is that we're trying to get someplace, not just Mm -hmm. trying to Marvel at how fast we can be.
0: Well, we talked about those liberal arts and the problem with the anthropocentrism of it and holding up the glory of man and, and fine arts and these entertainment fields are, in their practical outworkings, often just a, a working out of this self deification endeavors of finding a way to find your. 15 minutes of fame or, or to find the adulation and to achieve the idolatry of people. There are, there are far too many who say, Oh no, 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 no. I, I, I want me to grow I want my kids to grow up to be able to be big sports stars and make all of this money so that they only have to work for five years in their life and they have themselves made and they can just sit around and play and enjoy their money for the rest of their lives so that things are easy on them. That's not a godly end or endeavor. So, Fine arts is the much more polished, old school, Ivy League approved version of that. But it's essentially seeking the glory of man as an individual, giving everybody their time to shine and to self-deify themselves and to have that affirmed by the public who says, oh, I wish I could be talented like you. I wish I could swim like you. I wish I could paint like you or sing like you. No, I, I wish I could live like Christ, right? Everything else needs to fall by the wayside. So the fi- I think it's the final category um, yep.
1: is probably the hugest category in a <laughs> sense, because we're talking about the history of civilization. And, you know, I've discovered in my interactions with uh, classical education that there isn't this view that the Bible is history <laughs> the same way that it should be, that yeah. the Bible is history. It's truth and it's revelation. And that's got to be the starting point. Otherwise, why did God bother to give us the written word? And so when you separate history and you decide we're just going to look at things at what happened and not put a value judgment, what do you end up with?
0: There's a problem is, is, is that you're only looking at secondary causes then. If you're, if you're sitting here and looking in at history and going value judgment on this, you're only (laughs) applying your own, the the same problems we had with scientists and the impartial observation. Well, nobody's able to impartially observe anything. (laughs) The reason that modernism is so rampant nowadays is because everyone wants to say, oh, the one that's me and mine and belongs in my time, that's the best. Um, so there should be, we can't be evaluating history based off of that. And, and it should come, I, I want us to see this as, like you said, this is the big one that's emphasized and it does become the fulcrum here because we've all been working up to this point. If you notice, there's been a pattern in the liberal arts, in the natural sciences, in, in the fine arts that we've been moving through, in the classical literature. We have been moving towards a definitive statement of man, and the glory of man. And now we're going to go back through and we're really going to emphasize and we're going to hold up. This, this is the big, this is where we can see throughout the whole of his creation, throughout the whole of his existence, man has been the one who has glory, man has been the one who has achieved. Um, so that that's history has to be central in our examination of the classical system of classical education of classical curriculum. And it has to be the, the, the lynch point here because our basic understanding of knowledge as we started out this series was it's not secular versus sacred. It's city of man versus city of God. And you pointed out the, the, the big problem here when we start into this category is history defined apart from God, defined apart from the Bible, which is the most complete, reliable history record, even just as far as text concerns has had the, the most copies the best well preserved has been the most proven and keeps coming back so for it to be excluded from a study in history we're automatically starting with the, No, no 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 keep your god away from this we're already starting out with the city of man mindset and that's the point of this so we say history here it's the history of civilization so Civilization is defined as an advanced state of human society (laughs) in which a high level of cultural, science, industry, and government has been reached. History then is couched as when man flourishes on Earth, when man has done well on Earth. How does this relate to that chief end of man in Westminster, number one? The chief end of man is to flourish on Earth. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So this is this is an issue. Not only is the overall implicit retraining, a training of our mindset uh, affected by how we couch the terms, but what's included in it. We're not worried about specific dates a lot of times, especially since Darwin came out with the whole evolutionary mindset, and and we we can't really know. We've been more than willing to go no tens of thousands of years, no, 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 millions of years, and then billions of years we're going to blow it all up so that we can't really know when things started or when things ended. It's been fine for the last 2000 years though, but prior to that just don't really trust a lot of the dates. And there's no problem with not knowing the dates. So pass over that. We're going to look then at history as a series of cause and effect driven by the personalities or the character of the people evolved. Um, That is very (laughs) man centered again, This is trying to see it in terms of the glory of man and the accomplishments of man. And you see this in the emphasis of golden ages in classical education, especially what do we emphasize? We emphasize Greece. We emphasize Rome. We emphasize all of the wonderful things that happened in this golden age. Even the term golden age, it tries to make you say, no, 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 this is the height of civilization. But if you look back at ancient Greece and ancient Rome, what happened to them? If they were so great, if they were so awesome, do we still have Greece and Rome ruling the world? Right. No, no, this was a short term problem. And we keep coming back and holding them up, but especially with us in Western cultures and Western societies who's inherited this and, and keep holding them up as the standard to be going to we learned so much about Greece and Rome because they were the height of how man achieved and man's glory, which essentially makes the studies that emphasize Greece and Rome above all else, nothing more than a dog returning to its vomit. And that is a very profound
1: statement. Why are we studying the people who got it wrong? I think it's Cornelius Van Til who Coined the the term brute factuality. Mm -hmm. Some people look at history as I'm just studying the facts. Well, all facts will be interpreted. So you you pointed out. Well, we'll call something the Dark Ages. (laughs) Well, who called it the Dark Ages? Was (laughs) it people who looked at Jesus Christ as the light of the world, and was Christianity Christianity flourishing at that
0: time? There weren't any major human civilizations flourishing at that time. There weren't any huge centers like Greece and Rome and Byzantium, and you can even go into China and India and their golden ages. You know who was flourishing during the dark ages throughout all of Europe? It's not like the whole population died off. Even with the Black Death, it still wasn't the whole population that died off. But the primary driving force was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they were not perfect. They did not do things perfectly. They did try to Pass the line from ecclesiology into the political sphere. so they stepped out, but because everything was being driven by the church through the church, and the advancements were in terms of the spread of Christ and the spread of the gospel. oh let's call it dark, because there's no city of man in power at the time. There's, yeah yeah, an imperfect city of God, but still city of God endeavor going on throughout europe oh it's so bad it's so bad when the city of god is ruling can't wait to get back to an exceptional city of man period (laughs) so here we have the dark ages so to and again
1: i know you've got plenty of examples Mm -hmm. if we look at what is the dominion perspective for studying history it means that we need to say why are we doing this? Why is it important? And as a result of knowing this, what does it equip me to do? So what don't you get in terms of uh, serving God and keeping his commandments if the emphasis is a classical approach to history that is
0: not a biblical approach to history? Well, we're encouraged to look at the success of nations and eras in regards to Worldly success to human happiness and to mankind's accomplishments. That is not the glory of God. That is not a world that is revolving around the glory of God. That's not a very biblical, not a dominion-oriented mindset. But what happens to our perspective when we move the anthropocentric civilizations, man's building cities, and we replace it with the more theocentric concept of God in the world. Oh, I'm going to learn civilizations. No, no, no. I'm going to learn God in the world. Well, then how do you begin to look at everything? How do you begin to perceive history? Do you perceive this as a series of unrelated events where you just have to learn people and places and random dates? Or do you see an unfolding narrative, a purposeful, planned out unfolding narrative that is working to a specific end? It's so very, very different. And because that perspective then changes. You change the scope of what all you study. I'm not saying you don't study Greece and Rome, but you study Greece and Rome to say Ichabod, the glory has departed because it was never truly there. It was a polish. It was a spit shine. It was a a nice little gold leaf painted on the front of it. And all it took was somebody brushing it with their boots. And suddenly it showed itself to be basic stone underneath. It wasn't anything glorious. It wasn't anything golden at all. Uh, Obviously, our biggest help in doing that should be reading the Bible, learning the Bible. How do we learn how to see God in the world? Well, you would have to look and see in the one book that wrote about history and specifically then spelled out why history happened the way it happened according to God's purposes and ends. The Bible lays that out. If you avoid your, your Old Testament, then you've missed your greatest history text on earth because God lays out, this is what happened. This is when happened. This is why it happened for my purposes and ends. That's all the training you need for history. So in conclusion, because we're coming to the end
1: here, Mm -hmm. you talk in terms of a dominion perspective on classical curriculum. So you don't reject the explicit, implicit, hidden, and excluded, excluded as categories. Do you apply them to a biblical framework or do you think those categories
0: aren't useful? I think they already are a biblical framework and we're going to go into this. This is going to be the purpose of our next and our final podcast on this to see this is just an observation of the way that people learn, the way that people are affected. There's a reason that Proverbs 22 six. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Well, that is the four phases of curriculum. <laughs> that shows, okay, there is an immersion. There is supposed to be this all-inclusive aspect here. There are supposed to be shaping of our minds. there is supposed to be shaping of our behaviors. There are supposed to be things that are said outward very explicitly there are supposed to be things that we are kept away from or protected against but it's not because they are dangerous it's not because we can't hold dominion in within them it's because we're supposed to be engaging with them in a certain way and if we do not first and foremost put the bible center put the put our relationship to god center put christ in the center of all of this We end up with systems like the classical system, where it's man-centered. It's anthropocentric. It is the city of man. It is glory to man. It claims that it's secular versus sacred, and it claims that there's still room for God, but God is a la carte. God is on the side. That's what we have to overcome, and that's why we don't use the classical system as a system. Instead, we take the subjects of classical education And we bring them under dominion of a godly system that then recognizes there is explicit Stated things that we need to know. That implies certain things that we need to understand, a perspective, a worldview that we need to have of the world around us. There are behaviors that if we train ourselves within will help us to live faithfully, will help us to bring glory to God and to enjoy Him forever. And there are things that we do not allow to come into our lives to tempt us because they, they challenge God and never in a way that is going to help our good endeavors. Right.
1: And then I would say the culmination of a dominion-oriented education is the practice of your faith, your world and life, view, to the glory of God. So a person who is truly educated in the formative years when Children aren't expected to support themselves and go out and work. And if you have the benefit of allowing your children that time, they should take it as part of their work. This is what they're there to do to prepare them. And if you come away from any subject studied and you say, I have no idea why that is important. Why did I just waste 10 months of my life on that? You're really training people for boredom and apathy who then look for diversion to make their life have meaning as opposed to looking at service for the kingdom of God
0: is what gives their life meaning. Yeah. And that a dominion perspective, a dominion perspective of learning says that we don't just obey and do merely our duty to sit down and technically have to learn things. We're engaged with this because we see how it's relevant. We see how this brings glory to God. We see the purpose of knowledge, the practical outpouring of knowledge in righteousness, in in holiness under God, in how it's going to cause us to bring dominion here on earth. And the educational process, the learning process becomes fun. It becomes something that instead of it's being a drudgery, and oh, what do you mean I have to do six hours today? It's like, oh, can I can I throw on an extra half hour here? I I want to learn this extra thing here because I think I'm gonna need to know this, and I'm really interested in it, and I can see that it's gonna have that. Great, fine. This totally changes our mindset to learning, our behaviors in learning. Um and, and, and let me just things. add that whether you're
1: talking about a classical education specifically or The average person who wants to homeschool their children, you know, the parents that want to homeschool their children because they don't want the alternative, never require your student to do something you don't see the value of just because you're supposed to do it. Because Mm -hmm. then you develop a hatred for learning as opposed to a love of learning. And I read a statistic once that said most people after they leave high school, if they don't go on to college... Never read a book again, except, you know, pulp novels or things like that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the the daily rag that tells you what's happening with the famous people and the elites. So those who endeavor to educate children have to make sure that it's not a drudgery. It's not because I said so, not to assume that everybody hates school and everybody's supposed to hate school because that's just the way it is. No, that's what comes out of emphasizing book learning or, you know, being able to, you know, show your your medals for all the books that you read,
0: et cetera, (laughs) as opposed to, okay, tell me how this glorifies God. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to first and foremost, make you excited and aware as parents so that you can become more engaged in this process so that you are more um, enthusiastic in endeavoring to provide a good education for your children, whether it's at home or whether it's in a Christian school so that you can find a way, a good way to bring glory to God, both in what they're learning and in how you're teaching them how to learn and then how you end up learning by teaching them how to learn.
1: Very good. All right. One more installment to come. Thank you, Kathy. I appreciate you taking the time to lay this all out in a way that can be easily understood.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.